0: Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 91, Your People. Today's proverb comes from the Lord. I'll read it twice. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Once more, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It may seem strange to think of this as a proverb because it's really more of a command. And yet we often use this as a proverb, especially when we are talking to children, when adults are talking with children. We treat this less as a command than as a strategy for having a happy and productive life. I should say that adults love to say this to kids. Adults are often offended, they're often taken back when they hear other adults say this to them. We often claim special circumstances. Well, there are exceptions to this. The Lord's teaching is one that can be read mystically. It can be read theologically. Although I want to treat it as a proverb. I want to treat it as common sense. And with that in mind, I would like to make... I want to call it a slight adjustment to it, but it's really more of just an interpretation. And the interpretation I want to make to this proverb just involves making it plural. That's it. So I'm not saying, obviously, that the, prob- uh, that the proverb as it is is a problematic. I want to interpret it by teasing it out a little bit. And so do unto others as you'd have them do unto you is the proverb. I want to think about this proverb in this way, though. Do unto other people as you would have them do unto your people. Or not other people, but other peoples. Do unto other kinds of people as you would have them do unto your kind of people. Now, the original version of this proverb proposes a single sort of relationship, you and others. If we pluralize it, though, we get three relationships. First relationship, there's your people and their relationship with other kinds of people. And then there's you and Your relationship with your kind of people. And then there's you and your individual relationship with other kinds of people. So let's talk about you and your kind of people first. When I say your kind of people, I mean all the identities you have. Your people are your family, your church, your school, your place of business. Your people are also your gender. It's helpful to think of, for a man to think of men as his people, I think is very valuable. Your people are also your nation, your city, your neighborhood, as well as whatever teams you may be on, sports teams, teams at work, clubs, and so forth. These are all your kinds of people. These are all institutions that offer members an identity. And I've I've talked about this many times before. None of this is new. I've written on this for years. There are previous episodes of this show on this concept that all sort of open with this recognition, with this declaration that there's you and there's your kind of people. And not all of these identities are equally valuable, of course. Hopefully your church means more to you than your employer. Hopefully your family means more to you than your neighborhood. I mean, you've got to love your family whom you are uh, morally bound to care for more than those that are far away. You've got to love the people that are close to you. You've got to love the people that God has put in your path here and now today more than those that he has set farther away from you. In order to do unto other Peoples, other families, other churches, other schools, other genders, other nations. You have to first know what's good for your people. Let me say that again. In order to do unto other peoples as you would have them do unto your people, you have to know what's good for your people, which requires you to know something other than what you Like or what you prefer. And this is because there are plenty of people, there are plenty of individuals who like things that aren't good for their people. What dad likes isn't necessarily good for the family. Dad might like six hours of football games every weekend, but that's not making the family. Healthier, it's not making the family more stable. Dad might like to sleep in on Sunday morning. You might prefer it. Not good for the family, not good for the church. The church doesn't need its people to sleep in on Sunday morning. Similarly, your gender doesn't need you. your the male gender doesn't need men to act like they're interested in a certain woman, and then suddenly, for no good reason, give up on her. When a man is dealing with a woman, no matter what the context, he ought to be thinking, what do I have to do here for this woman to think well of men? If women think well of men, if women have a reason to think well of men, everybody wins. Likewise, if men think well of women, if men have a good, solid reason to think well of women, everybody wins. But you've got to give people a reason. Occasionally you see this in old films or films made about old books. Some woman is abusing and upbraiding a man in public for no reason or for insufficient reason, and he just sits there and takes it. Because he doesn't want to give men a bad name. And you, you find this, it's more true for men than it is for women in terms of like, publicly declaring the rules of engagement between the sexes. That men will say, well, a man should never do that to a woman or around a woman. It's, it's inappropriate for a man to ever do thus and such around a woman. Or a man ought always do this in front of a woman it's manners, right? It's just in terms of manners, in terms of relationship, a relationship between all men and all women, this continual relationship, this relationship that has been tumultuous for nearly the entire extent of human history. We have hacked out, we have patiently put together and refined certain manners that help men and women get along men have determined these ways of publicly conducting themselves around women that are for the benefit of women and vice versa too. There are plenty of old manners that were particular to men or to women long ago, somewhat still exist today, but they existed merely to help the other sex think well of your sex. Women would say among themselves, don't do that around, that drives men crazy. Don't do that around a woman. That's insulting to a woman. And like a woman, women thought of other women as this kind of person where you shared in this identity that had to be represented to this other kind of person. And it's really, it's for everyone's benefit that men behave well around women and women behave well around men that men and women give the other sex a reason to be admiring and respectful to the other. This is very uncommon these days, this idea that women have this responsibility to be custodians of the female race in the presence of men, and that men have this responsibility to be custodians of women's perceptions of men when they're in the presence of women. It's very uncommon. But still, I think every woman knows a few men who make it easy to admire and respect men. I think every man knows a few women who make it easy to respect and admire women. Every man knows a few women who are just really good at being women. In the same way, there are artists who are great artists. There are teachers who are great teachers. There are lawyers who are great lawyers. There are women who are great women. I do mean women who are great teachers or great lawyers. I just mean great women. And the same is true for men. There are some men who are just great at being men. And these are, these are women and men who have this strong sense of diplomacy when it comes to dealing with. With the other sex. But the manner of diplomacy takes me to the other two kinds of relationships implied by do unto other kinds of people as you'd have them do unto your kind of people. There's your kind of people and there's other kinds of people and you're an ambassador for your kind of people to other kinds of people. Do you want other kinds of people to think well of your people? And how do you prove it? If you're Catholic, do you want Presbyterians to think well of Catholics? If you're vegan, do you want meat eaters to think well of vegans? If you send your kids to a classical school, Do you want people who send their kids to Montessori schools to think well of classical education? Do you want other families to think well of your family? Your family has an identity. Your family is a particular thing. Your family has a brand, for lack of a better term. Is it valuable? Does your family have a valuable identity? I don't mean do they have money. Not at all. Because there are plenty of families that have money that are not valuable to their communities. Is your family a boon to other families? Is your family a boon to your school, to your church? Is your your church a boon to the Christian cause in the world? Have you proven that your identity, family, church, whatever, have you proven that it's a boon to others? Have you even thought about this? If you think highly of your identity, you will be ashamed to bring disgrace upon it. Do you handle your identities with care in the presence of other identities? There's a scene in The Dead by James Joyce, long, almost novella-level story that finishes off Dubliners. There's a scene in The Dead, which is set at this Christmas party or end-of-the-year party. And there are both Catholics and Protestants at this Christmas party. And one of the Catholics, one of the Catholic characters in the story, starts badmouthing the Pope. Or he says some disparaging thing. And there's this other Catholic character that says, hey, shut up. There's Protestants here. <laughs> you, can, you can badmouth the Pope in front of other Catholics, but not in front of Protestants. Why would you bad what good could it possibly do for a Protestant to hear Catholics badmouthing the Pope among themselves? Now, I understand the sentiment. I think it's more true than not. At the same time, you also represent your identity to the people who also claim that identity. And this is why people. Leave schools. This is why people leave churches and leave religions. We can forgive so much, we can forgive a lot, but when people of your identity don't respect your identity, when people at your church don't respect your church, you start to wonder why you do. Like you can have. So many bratty kids at your school. But if you reach a certain level, people are going to start wondering what kind of school this is. Not outsiders. Insiders are going to start wondering what kind of school is this? This is a school for bratty kids. Why am I sending my kids here? This is a school for TikTok stars and gamers. Why am I sending my kids here? No one has more reason to dislike your church than you do. No one has more reason to dislike your school than you do, your family. No one has more reason to dislike your identity than you do because you've seen more than anyone else. Our people, my people, don't let other people in to see everything. That's why it's a risk to let new people in. That's why it's a risk to turn other people into your people. There's got to be a ceremony there, right? When other people become your people, there's got to be a ceremony. And the ceremony really needs to invoke some higher power. Because when when other people become your people, you are inviting them to see your flaws, your weaknesses. You know the weaknesses of your people better than outsiders do. Outsiders can't be trusted with weakness. In other words, not to be vulgar, but you've got to make a binding commitment to someone before you can see them naked. As soon as you let someone in, maybe not as soon as, pretty much as soon as you let someone in, they start to see the weaknesses. It's bound to happen. There's this initial period where all the reasons you wanted to take on a certain identity are all that you can see. And it lasts a short while. But then this period opens up where you get to know all the weaknesses of your new identity. And you've got to stomach through it. Most Americans can't do that, which is why most Americans change church affiliations so frequently these days. It's in that period where all the weaknesses start to come out, you start to see them. And people think, ah, my people are lucky to have me. I'd say that this is like the, the my people are lucky to have me line of reason. It's often like this, like six months after it starts up to two years after it starts sort of period. Like if you move to Alaska, you'd probably love it for six months. Like if you decided to move to Alaska, you'd probably love it for six months. I mean, you know, you're getting into the cold. If you move to Alaska, you know, you're moving far from most people. In America, you're moving far. And it's cold and there's snow. I mean, you know what the deal is if you move to Alaska. So if you know what the deal is with Alaska, you probably love it for six months or so, maybe less. And in those six months, all you're doing is loving the snow and the the far awayness of it all. But then something happens, and I think this is for everybody. Like six months in, you're like, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. No one ever told me about this, that, and the other thing. When I thought of Alaska, I thought of far away and cold. But there was a lot more to it than that, and I don't know that I like all the rest of this. (laughs) Probably the same thing that happens if you... You grow up Baptist and then convert to Catholicism. in like six months and it's great. Like, oh, the vestments, the bells, the beauty of the worship. Then you move to some town where there's no beautiful worship. (laughs) Like if you convert to any religion for the beauty of it. You got to be ready. (laughs) You got to be ready to keep up with that religion, to keep up with that denomination. When the only version of that denomination, when the only iteration of that denomination meets in a basement somewhere, and there's only 19 people. Like, I mean, if you, if you, if you convert to Catholicism because you went to St. Peter's Basilica, you're like, oh, the beauty of it all. And then you have to move to like Arizona, where there's like one Catholic mission in town. You've got to be in for some reason other than the beauty of St. Peter's Basilica. Like, As an Orthodox Christian, I've, I've seen this so many times. Like, if you're Orthodox, you have to be ready to worship in some, like, cardboard setup in a poorly lit, like, basement or attic somewhere like if you're in for it I know I get it the beauty of the liturgy and all that you've got to be willing to do it when it's ramshackle I mean that's often what people find six months in so there was far more to it there was far more to it than you could have imagined right off the bat so you move to Alaska you love the snow and the far awayness and then six months in you're like wow there's some stuff about this. This is awful. And I think that, that the... Wait a second. This is actually not that great period of anything. It's like after you're six months in, and it probably goes up to like two years. You've got this long period where you have to acclimatize to everything that's not great about your people. And I think, I think you've got a while You've got a while, you've got like a year and a half, you've got two years tops to white knuckle it through. Wait a second, this isn't what I thought it would be. And if you can, if you can make it that long, you can probably escape the my people are lucky to have me mindset, which is the worst. My people are lucky to have me will tear you apart. You've got to get over it as quickly as possible. If you think your church is lucky to have you, they're not. As soon as you think your people are lucky to have you, they're not. Like, there's no point where your people are more sick of you than in that year-and-a-half-long period where you're grumbling about everything that no one told you about right up front. If you think your family's lucky to have you, they're not. If you think your wife is lucky to have you, she's not. If you think your school is lucky to have you, it's not. Your people are lucky to have people who think they're lucky to have your people. Let me say that one more time. Your people are lucky to have people who think they're lucky to have your people. If you think your people are lucky to have you, there's not much of a chance you're gonna stick with your people through thick and thin. You're constantly, if you think your people are lucky to have you, you're constantly wondering when it's going to happen, when the straw that broke the camel's back is finally going to fall. The sort of person who thinks his people are lucky to have him is often relying upon very thin evidence. The cult of the self, the sort of religion which is everywhere and always practiced in the temple of social media, has produced the sort of person who believes that the chief reason why their people are lucky to have them is not for their loyalty, not for their labor, not for their blood, sweat, and tears, but for their sparkling personality. What's the greatest thing you offer your church? What's the greatest thing you offer your school? For the average modern man, the answer to this question is, well, me, my sparkling personality. And we act like this is self-evident Like any church should be glad to have Anybody that wants to be a member As though my desire To be a member of this church Or this school or this place of business Is what qualifies me to be a member There's this moment in the purgatorio When Dante's trying to make it Through the gates of purgatory Which are really the gates of heaven After the gates of purgatory, there's no more gates. It's the gates of heaven. And there's a guardian that he has to make it past in order to get into heaven. The gates of hell are wide open. Like Like the door to hell is always open. You don't even have to knock. You can accidentally wander through the gates of hell. That's what it means that the road is wide that leads to destruction. No one's checking IDs at the gates of hell. There are no qualifications for memberships at the Country Club of Hell. Heaven's another story. When Dante approaches the gates of heaven, there's an angel that asks him, and this is, a, this is like a direct quote, What is it you want? Beware, you may regret coming here. Can you imagine an institution today asking this question? Almost Anyone seeking membership anywhere would be taken back by... What is it I want? I want in. Is, is that not all there is to it? What kind of stuck-up prig asks for qualifications to be met? Everything is... Every institution is basically viewed as a store. Like there's there's nobody. There's nobody standing at the door of J Crew asking people when they come in, "Uh, what is it you want?" <laughs> like, I want in. That's it. Isn't it isn't that simple enough? I want into your store. Maybe I will buy one of your sweaters. Can you imagine if you asked that question to the average man who had requested membership in a church today, "What do you want?" <laughs> Oh, I want. I just, just want good community. Nah, there's plenty of churches that offer good community. <laughs> why do you want to come to this church? Why is it? Why is it you want this church community? What is it that you want us to give you? Most people are going to be baffled by. Why? Well, I just want some good fellowship. Nah, you're going to have to do better than that. If that's all you want, you won't stick around for long. Because there's six dozen churches that offer that out there. If the only reason you're coming here is for something you could get anywhere else, you're not going to stick around for long. If an institution needs to exist, it needs to be distinct. If your church offers something which is the same as what the church down the block offers, your church should just go to that church. (laughs) If all you offer is good community and fellowship, just go somewhere else. You don't need to exist. If your school offers something which the school down the block offers, your school should just go to that school. If you set up a school or a church that isn't like other churches or schools, new members should be able to tell you, the gatekeeper, what that thing is. If your institution can't do that, your institution would be better off being absorbed by an institution which is distinct. Like, imagine if you found two Presbyterian churches, I mean two OPC churches, side by side in a certain town. And both of them running at less than half capacity. Not in different parts of the city, I mean side by side. If you found such a scenario, you would be within your rights to assume that one of these churches didn't need to exist. The only time you find side-by-side institutions offering the same thing is when they're selling something. If it's too easy to assume a new identity, the point of the identity is probably just making money.